This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. There's never been a better time to be a salesperson or a success-minded individual in human history. We now have in our hands more tools, more technology, and more insight available to us than ever before. I'm proud to announce our new sponsor for this episode of In the Arena, Jeffrey Gittimer and Gittimer Gold Webinars, The Year of the Sale. And what is The Year of the Sale and Gittimer Gold Webinars? Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get 12 webinars. You're going to get a full year of personal and professional development for sales professionals and, I would argue, success-minded individuals. It begins with webinar one, the new sale. And I'm only going to touch on this one because it's so important. It's Gittimer giving you his very best ideas on what's now, what's new, what's next, how are sales being made, and how are we going to make sales over the next decade. And this is just the greatest building block, cornerstone content for what follows. And with that, you're going to get content on following up. You're going to get content on cold calling. You're going to get content on social selling, relationships, Managing millennials, you're going to get content on how to be a trusted advisor. We use those words, but nobody tells you what you're supposed to do to be that trusted advisor. You're also going to get some ideas about differentiation that come from Gittimer, who is somebody who's very, very creative in this space and has differentiated himself amazingly in this market. I would argue perhaps the best in the market when it comes to differentiating and brand building. You're also going to get a bonus webinar called Dominate 2016. And this is not just sales content. This is who do you need to be and what do you need to do if you're really going to win in this year. And this is content that will help you succeed every year. So you go to jeffreygittimer.com forward slash gold. You'll also find this in the show notes. And you pay monthly or you pay annually. If you pay monthly, it's 79 bucks a month for 12 webinars. You're making a 12-month commitment. And if you pay for the whole year at once, it's $500. You're going to save some money there. You're going to get exclusive access to a Facebook group, and you are going to develop yourself personally and professionally. But wait, there is more. If you use the word Anthony as the code when you sign up, you're going to get a massive discount on either one of these programs. So go out and visit my friend Jeffrey Gittimer at jeffreygittimer.com forward slash gold. Check out the webinars. Do invest in your personal and professional development. It's so important. You are the only asset that you have. You're the only resource that you have. And the bigger and stronger that resource and asset is for you, the more success you're going to have. Go check it out. Gittimer Gold, jeffreygittimer.com forward slash gold. When you get there, tell Git that Anthony sent you. Invariably, on Sunday mornings when I send out my newsletter, I get an email back from a person who gives me their ideas and their thoughts and their opinions and says something about whatever I sent. And that person is always 
the one and only Bob Berg. I've never met Bob in person, but we've spent hours on Skype. We've talked about all kinds of issues. We have a lot of the same beliefs. We have a lot of the same ideas. He's a great friend. And if you don't know Bob, I want to point you to some of his work. First, Endless Referrals, which if you haven't read is a must read because it's your best source of leads. And what he's best known for is The Go-Giver. And at some point in this interview, I suggest that it sold something near 250,000 copies, but it turns out I'm off by quite a large number. It sold 500,000 copies, which if Bob was a rock band, he would be Led Zeppelin, and this would be a quadruple platinum album. So without any further ado, we want to welcome our good friend Bob Berg back in the arena. You're going to love this. You're going to learn a lot. And I'll see you on the other side. My good friend, Bob Berg, how are you? I'm great, Anthony. How are you? I'm wonderful, but our libertarian politics were sure to alienate everybody. So I, I didn't hit record until we got to this point. Ah! Just, <laughs> just to make sure we're, we're winning friends and influencing people. You have a new book out, and we're here to talk about that new book, but before we do, I want to ask a couple more general questions. And you haven't been through my new exercise where I'm going to ask you a speed round of questions at the end of this that are sort of like the inside the actor studio, kind of James Lipton style. So okay. this will be your first time through those. So The Go-Giver, I mean, this book is already in the sales community. This is a legendary book. It sold, what, a quarter of a million plus copies now? It's over 500,000 now. Oh my and, gosh, I uh, cut you in half. Oh, that that's okay. You know, we've been we've been pretty happy with it. We think there's a lot more room for growth though. I do too, and I think it's such a universal message and it's so important. Why the go-giver leader? Why did you write this book? I think when authors write a book it's because we have something that we want to share in a certain way. What caused you to decide to share this message under this banner now? Well, on one hand, the market asked us to, because we did get a lot of people asking, what would Pindar, you know, the main mentor in The Go-Giver, what would Pindar have to say about leadership, about leadership today, about leadership, how it's traditionally thought of, and as it would look from the viewpoint of what we would call a go-giver. And as you know, when we use the term go-giver, we're simply speaking of someone who has learned or who perhaps is, has always intuitively known that it's the person who can shift their focus from, from getting to giving, giving in this context, meaning constantly and consistently providing value to others, to the marketplace, who knows that not only is it a nice way to live life, it's a very financially profitable way as well. And we thought, how would Pindar look at that in terms of leadership? Leadership's such a tricky topic, you know, mm -hmm. and if you go out and you find a list of like, well, what is leadership? People are going to say leadership is vision and leadership is building other leaders and leadership is building a burning platform and compelling people to change. When you're done with it, the list is a thousand things long that leadership is, right? Mm -hmm. So briefly, tell me, the difference between, because you put it under go-giver. So let's talk about what's the difference between a go-giver leader and just when we just say leader, what's the difference? A go-giver leader knows that they are charged with a huge responsibility, and that's to serve others, to focus, if you will, on bringing exceptional value to those they lead. Now, first and foremost, Anthony, I'd say that a go-giver leader understands that great leadership is not about the leader but rather about everyone whose lives they have the opportunity to touch. A positional leader, if you will, right? Someone who is in a position of leadership so they can 
through compulsion or through compliance, if you will, right? They can make people do certain things. And let's face it, the employee knows if he or she wants any chance for advancement, a promotion, a raise, or to not be punished or disciplined or fired, they need to do what they're told. That's positional leadership. And trying to lead that way, although that's traditional, that's that top-down command and control, it typically is not very productive. When you lead through compliance, at best, the people in your organization are going to do exactly what they're told and not one bit more. And that's the very, very best you can hope for. At worst, they'll find a way to sabotage the process completely, consciously or unconsciously. But the traditional leader in that type, it's all about them. It's all about themselves. It's how do I use people in order to get me where I want to go? The go-giver leader asks, how do I empower others? How do I work with others? How do I build others and bring out the best of others to help lift everyone. I'm going to reference Mark Skusen here. And you know you know his oh, pam- pamphlet, sure. Persuasion Versus Force? This is yes. going to end up in the, the show notes. I, so, I have it so in my library. Why is persuasion so much more powerful than force? And why do we sometimes think that this force, this org chart leadership, this positional leadership or title, so much more powerful? And I, I see the mistake in business all the time is that I should be able to tell them and it should be done. And mm-hmm. really the job of the leader is different than that. It really is a job of influence and persuasion and not force. Why is influence and persuasion so much more powerful? Anthony, I think that Dale Carnegie summed it up perfectly in his classic, How to Win Friends and Influence People, where he wrote, ultimately, people do things for their reasons, not our reasons. And that is why the great leader or great influencer constantly ask themselves, in fact, they question their own motives. They say, how does what I'm asking this other person to do, how does it align with their wants, with their needs, their goals, their desires? How does what I want this other human being to do, how does it align with their values? And when asking ourselves these questions intelligently, thoughtfully, genuinely, authentically, not as a way to manipulate a person into doing our will, but as a way to build everyone in the process, at that point, we have come a lot closer to earning their commitment. One of my great friends and mentors, Dondi Scumachi, I love what she says. She says, when it comes to leadership, compliance will never take you where commitment can go. I love that quote, and it's so true. We're really in the role of leader trying to win hearts and minds. And mm-hmm. you know, when, when you have to have somebody do something under threat or under penalty as compliance, it's going to create more resistance than anything else. Absolutely. And that's a perfect way to say it. It will create resistance. Let me talk about, well, let me have you talk about the five keys in the book, because it's your book. And this is the thing about leadership. And of course, you do this in the, the style that you and, and John David Mann have made legendary with a go-giver. And this is this is building right on top of that. But you you had to pick five things, and you had to pick this finite number to mm-hmm. talk about as what makes a go-giver leader. And so you've drawn a box around these five. Let's talk about what the five are. And then I want to start and just go through a couple of them. Particularly, I want to start with the vision thing. Okay. And I want to talk about the building people thing, because mm-hmm. th- these are two for me that are so fundamental and so overlooked. And what I see some people do is the leader 
sort of allows himself to be shifted into management, which is allocation of resources more than providing that vision. So share all five and then let's tackle those two if you don't mind. Sure. Well, number one is hold the vision. Number two is build your people. Number three is do the work. Number four is stand for something. And number five is practice giving leadership. Let's start with hold the vision. Okay. You know, Anthony, this means nothing more than it's the leader's job to always have the big picture in mind, the long range view, to know where the enterprise is going. At the same time, of course, to do this effectively, they must tie it in to the dreams, wants, desires, goals of everyone else. But there's one more part to this, too. It's one thing to have the vision. That's kind of the easy part. It's another thing to hold the vision when things start to go sideways. And, hey, we both know in business they will go sideways. And when other people are sort of falling apart and saying, oh, it's not going to happen. This isn't going to work. This is it's up to that leader to be the one to take responsibility in this case to hold that vision, to be an encourager. It's interesting because when you even have the vision and you're doing the right things, I've talked about this before on my blog. It's almost like you don't know this because you live in Florida. We have this stuff in the Midwest called ice. And when you're (laughs) when you're on ice. You can be doing everything right, and your automobile can still be going the wrong direction. Now, that's not the same kind of ice as when I grew up in Massachusetts. Is that a different ice? It's a much lesser ice than your Ah, Massachusetts ah. ice, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't known this ice in a while, then. But it's still, your ice still, you skid and stuff. You slide like crazy, (laughs) even though you're doing everything right. And so this is this idea that even you have to hold the vision, even though other people are ready to jump ship to panic, Mm -hmm. to figure out, wait wait a second, this isn't working. You have to stand strong in the storm, Mm -hmm. even when everything around you looks like it's chaos, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a tough thing, but I I like the way that you've written about it and talk about it, because it is that ability to be there and do the right thing, even though it may take time for the wheels to catch. Mm -hmm. Let's deal with building people, and what does that mean under the Go-Giver banner? What it really means is that it's the leader's job to always remember that whatever the enterprise does, whatever it's about, it's fundamentally about its people. Building widgets, building a portfolio, building equity, they're all important, but none of these is as central to the health of the enterprise as building the people who make up the enterprise. I think of someone such as Bob Chapman, the chair and CEO of Barry Waymiller. It's a multi-billion dollar manufacturing firm based out of St. Louis, Missouri. And here's a guy who absolutely has dedicated himself to building his people, but nothing soft about this. He equips them and he trains them and he loves them and he, but this is a hugely profitable company. And from the time he began doing this, it became more profitable. Now, if I can take a moment, I've got to share his epiphany because how this started is actually quite terrific. And he wrote a book called Everybody Matters. And to me, it's one of the best leadership books ever, ever written. And he tells a story that when, you know, years ago, he was at the wedding of the daughter of one of his best friends. And his best friend, the father of the bride, was making the toast. And he made a very eloquent toast, welcoming the new son-in-law into the family. And as he did this, Bob sort of looked at his wife and, you know, they have a daughter and And he thought, you know, 
what this man, what his friend was really thinking was, you know, son, welcome to the family. I just want you to know this is our daughter. This is our precious child who we raised, who we nurtured, who we equipped, who we protected, who we had, right? And he just kept thinking. Then he he had an epiphany at that point. And he said, you know, it's interesting. He said, we've got tens and tens of thousands of people working in our company at Barry Waymiller. And each and every one of those employees is someone's precious son or daughter. And it was at that point, he took on the responsibility of treating them exactly like that. And again, we're not talking about some soft la-la, oh, isn't that nice? No, his company is hugely profitable and very effective. And perhaps that's why. Yes. You know, it's interesting because the leader, their charge is to take care of their people and Mm -hmm. to take care of the enterprise and take care of the customers. And none of that happens if you don't take care of the people. You know, Anthony, Simon Sinek in his excellent book, Eaters Eaters Lead Last, Leaders Eat Last, uh, talks about what he calls the circle of safety. And the circle of safety simply on a very basic level means that the employees know that leadership has their back. They feel safe in their environment. But it's not just, again, it's not a matter of some feel-goody type of thing. As Simon explains, this goes back to the cave person days, like pretty much everything else does, right? Where it was a matter of survival. Every day was life and death, a matter of survival. You were part of your tribe of 150 people, and you had to know you felt, you know, you felt protected. You had to do the things and be and feel protected. And of course, we don't have that kind of situation now, but it's been an I hate to use one of those corny phrases that everyone uses these days, but it's been hardwired into our DNA at this point that we need that and we need to feel protected. And when people within our organizations feel that way, when they know that we care about them as people, not as cogs in a machine, and that we have their back they are much more committed to the organization and to that leader's vision. Don't you feel that with the great uncertainty that we have in the economy and with politics and with global affairs, that that certainty may be rising and taking even more of a precedence in the mind of individuals? I would say much more. Absolutely. Yeah, it feels that way to me. It feels like Mm -hmm, there's just mm -hmm. more of that. I need to know that I have a home. I need to know that I'm cared about. And the go-giver leader, this is making that place safe and building people up. I also think that the leader has a charge to help their people grow professionally and personally, and also to turn them into leaders on their own right. Yes. And well, at Barry Waymiller, they have Barry Waymiller University. You look at Disney and they have a school of study just like that, where they have their leadership candidates and other employees that attend those kinds of trainings. I interviewed Lee Cockerell, the former executive vice president of operations for Disney World, and he was he was the creator of the Disney Great Leader Strategies. And he talked about that, that they made that such a primary part of the Disney culture to make sure to teach, to mentor, to coach, to equip people to learn these things. Uh, absolutely. And then and you look at how the Disney cast treats the guests, and that's a function of the culture of them being cared about. How they're treated, absolutely. Tell me about standing for something. Well, Aunt L, who's the main mentor in this story, the wise mentor, she says to Ben, who's the protagonist, the young protege, she says that what you have to give, you 
offer least of all through what you say. Now, what you say is very important, of course, tact and diplomacy and kindness, of course, but it's the least important. More important, she says, is what you do. But of even greater importance is who you are. And to me, that has to do with character. Character comes from an old Greek word, meaning scrape or scratch. It came to mean an engraved marking and eventually a defining quality. Now, if we were going to be poetic, we could say that character is what happens when life etches or scratches itself onto your soul. However, I'm not particularly poetic. So I would just say a defining quality. Probably more accurately, it would be the sum total of all one's qualities equals their defining quality or character. Something about a person, a leader with character, they stand for something, okay? They stand for something and you know where they stand. I think of John Allison, the former chairman for 25 years, the chairman and CEO of Branch Banking and Trust Company, better known as BB&T. Now, few people know of John Allison because he, he doesn't make for good media. He stood for something. <laughs> and not only was BB&T during his reign one of the most profitable major banks uh, in the world, they were also one of the few in the U.S. that did not participate in subprime lending, choosing only to make conventional loans. Why? Because John Allison understood the unholy alliance between certain members of our government and government-sponsored entities such as Fannie Mae and many of the people on Wall Street. He understood it was not good for the individuals. It was not good for the country. It was also contrary to BB&T's mission, which is to make a profit through adding value to the lives of their customers. And because it wasn't, he was easily able to just pass by the countless billions and billions of dollars, okay? Now, here's the interesting thing. When the cards came crumbling or the cookie crashed, or I think I just mixed metaphors there, but BB&T and John Allison were both standing tall, both in reputation and financially. When the bank regulators came along to give away the taxpayer's money, known as bailout money, he refused it. He didn't want it. He and the bank did not need it. However, it was through a very thinly veiled threat, he was actually forced to take it. And soon after that, he retired from the banking industry and he's been doing other things now. But John Allison is a man who stood for something. He does not believe in cronyism. He believes in free markets. And he's a guy who, hey, whether you agreed, uh, you know, whether you were someone working for him in his organization who agreed with everything about him or not, it didn't matter. He was loved and respected. In fact, Harvard Business Review a couple of times named him as one of the best bosses in the country because he stood for something. He had character. It's about values. And, it is. And, and it's about saying there could be money that could come in from this play that I don't like, but that money's no good here because who we are matters more than these few extra dollars. And we can find a way to be profitable without doing this and without doing something that goes against these set of values. Yeah, and they did. And you know, People with character, people who stand for something, Anthony, it's not that they won't be flexible on strategy. Of course they will be. It's not that they won't make mistakes sometimes. They will, and they'll course correct. But when it comes to those, like you were saying, those values-based decisions, they are immutable, they are immovable, and they are unchangeable. 
That's what makes them a great leader. Yeah. Let me ask you, outside of the book, personally, who was a leader in your life that you think embodied some of what shows up in The Go-Giver? Does it count if I say my dad? It absolutely counts. My dad. (laughs) Tell me about what he embodied in The Go-Giver. You talk about a person of character. I will never forget one time. I was probably about 10 years old. It's one of my favorite, what I call my favorite dad stories. And we were having some new carpet put in the house. And the crew manager was one of these kind of, you know, rough, tough kind of guys. And he had his crew with him. And and they're nice people, but they were kind of, you know. And I remember my dad went upstairs at uh, lunchtime. uh, He had sent out for pizza and he was bringing up the pizza to give to the crew. And, you know, my dad's a guy who was brought up in that Americana during the Depression, the immigrant slum type of thing and did well as an entrepreneur. And he was very relatable. You know, people all love my dad. My dad embodies my favorite saying about people skills. And that is the single greatest people skill is a highly developed and authentic interest in the other person. And anyone dad spoke with, and to this day, they know he cares about them. Okay. It just comes through. It's natural for him. It's genuine for him. But he was speaking with the boss and and the boss said something like, Hey, Mr. Berg, these, this is an expensive job. These women will really spend our money for us, won't they? And I know he was trying, I was listening in. I was around the corner. They couldn't see me. And I know he was just making, you know, macho talk, right? The two men kind of talking about their what, right? But I knew my dad would never fall into that trap. And But my dad's also, again, very kind and tactful, and he wouldn't put the person down. And what dad said is, well, you know, I'll tell you, when they were there with you before you had anything, and they're the reason why you are where you are, you'll do anything that you possibly can to make them happy. Now, that was not what he was looking for. That's not what that guy was in. He, so he kind of tried again. Well, that's true, but boy, I'll tell you, they'll kind of play on that as much as I can. And, you know, again, my dad said, well, I'll tell you what, when they're the love of your life and they're, you know, they were there for you when you don't. And, you know, and it, and it went, well, you tried one more time. And again, my dad did the same thing. And finally the boss gave up. Okay. And he went, oh yeah, you know, I don't know if the crew boss learned anything about how a real man speaks about their wife. I don't know if he learned anything about how a real man is of high enough character to not get into gossip about their wife, but it sure taught a little 10 year old that you stand firm. You don't give in to that sort of talk or that. So, you know, you don't do things that run contrary to your values. It's just a great story. Just a great story. Your dad's a tough guy in his own right. Boxer, right? He was. And, you know, it's interesting. After World War II and he was in Miami and and Miami Beach, he actually ran the uh, Fifth Street Gym, the famous Fifth Street Gym under Chris and Angelo Dundee. Angelo Dundee later on would train uh, Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard and so forth. So that was kind of a neat thing. But uh, yeah, yeah. Did you get to meet Dundee? I actually did. He came up. Muhammad Ali was was having an exhibition in Boston. I was in ninth grade. And Angelo came up with him for that, which is unusual because there'd be no reason that that would usually be. So he called my dad. And they, they usually kept in touch. They spoke once a year on the phone. And so Angelo uh, Dundee came over the house for a uh, dinner. And I'll tell you, it was such a thrill for me because I'd always heard dad talk about, you know, Angie, as he, as he always called him. And, and I remember dad said, Angie, I've been telling my boys for years, who's the greatest fighter pound for pound of all time. And Angelo Dundee said, Willie Pep, who was, you know, the great featherweight champion from Hartford, Connecticut back in the fifties when, and it was just, it was, it was just so fantastic. I'd love to be part of that argument. Oh, It's, (laughs) it's Floyd Patterson. You could have an argument about that forever. Oh, Floyd Wayweather or, yeah, or, yeah. And, and, you know, there's certainly, hey, there's some real greats. 
I want to ask you to tell another story just because you've, you've told it and I've seen it on video. If you can tell the story just for a minute on when you bought Zig Ziglar's cassette tape. Will, will uh, you, I tell this story about you behind your back all the time because I, I love the story. Can you share the story? So where you were at that time and how that changed your life and what you learned? Yeah, well, I was in Oklahoma City. And I had just started with a company. We sold a product that was a high ticket item. It was a tough sell. It was a great product, but you know, it was just a very intricate sell. And, you know, I was just really kind of making my way. I had been, I'd been sort of studying sales, but I wasn't quite there yet. And I remember that Zig was coming into the Oklahoma City Civic Center. And somebody said, you know, if you really want to move to that next level of selling, Berg, you've got to go see Zig Ziglar. So I kind of, and I would say at that time, I was, you know, money-wise in such a bad position, my immediate short-term goal was to work my way up to being broke, okay? So, <laughs> so you know, I took money I didn't have, and I went and I saw Zig, and of course, he was absolutely magnificent. He was telling us that we needed a checkup uh, from the neck up, uh, <laughs> And it's our attitude uh, and not our aptitude, uh, which will ultimately determine uh, our altitude. Uh, and it was, oh, he was so amazing. And at the end, he held up his tapes. and ba- That's how long ago it was, Anthony. Tapes. Cassette tape albums, we used to call them. And he said, you know, to go back there and get them. And I absolutely couldn't afford to get them. So I went back to get them. And several of my fellow salespeople were kind of holding me back. And, you know, where are you going, Berg? You can't afford those tapes. We can't afford those tapes. And I said, I know. That's why I'm going back there to get those tapes so that one day I can afford to get those tapes and and anything else I want to afford. And uh, they thought I was crazy. But I went back and got them. And, And one of the things I tell people is I didn't listen to them. I devoured them. And I just kept listening again and again. And in the job I had, you had to go to people's homes and sometimes there'd be a drives of an hour, two hours, you know. And so I'd constantly just be listening and listening and listening. Well, I'll make the story shorter. But one of the challenges I had was that, and it was a very scripted presentation. It was a good presentation. Not, I don't mean good like me doing good, but I mean, it was a well thought out presentation that the company leadership had put together. And it took about, Three hours. You were in the home that night for about three hours. I always joke and say at about two hours and 23 minutes, probably it's not much of a joke. That's how detailed this was. They would say, you know, this seems great, but your price is way too high. And of course, not only did I have a challenge answering that, but because I couldn't have afforded it, to me, I agreed with them inside. You know, I may yes. have come up with like the standard answer, right? But inside, I'm thinking, you're darn right, it's too high. Now, you know, even though to them it really wasn't because this is what the product was for and, and it was going to actually save them a lot of money. So I was listening to Zig's tapes and on the what I think is the 16th time, because I think I counted up 15 times in a row, it was just front and back, front, tape one to tape six, tape one to tape six, just 16th time. He talked about how to actually answer the price objection in a way that was so good and so respectful and so helpful to the customer. And I got it on that 16th time. It just connected with me. And I felt equipped. And that very night, uh, I was on a sales call and the person at about two hours and 23 minutes or whatever it was said, you know, Mr. Berg, this is really, really a, a nice product and I can see it would be really helpful, but I've got to tell you, your price is too high. 
And, you know, Zig had done a whole thing about, are you concerned about the price or the cost? And, you know, the person would say, uh, well, what's the difference? And so, and Zig would answer. So when I, when I said to this person, well, sir, are you concerned about the price or the cost? And his exact words were, well, I don't understand. What's the difference? You know, and it went exactly as Zig was, was telling me to do it in the tapes. And that night, the people purchased that system, and they were very, very happy that they did. And the commission on that was, was let's say it, it paid for the tapes many, 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 many times over. So the question that I would ask people who might take pause in investing in themselves in terms of personal development is, you know, did that tape cost me money or did those tapes make me money? And the fact is, they've made me tens of thousands hundreds of thousands, probably millions of dollars over the years. And so for obvious reasons, I'm a huge believer in self-investing, investing in our own personal development. It's so important. I've got a couple books, Spin Selling by Neil Rackham. Oh, I ma- love that book. Major account sales strategy. I can trace, love that book. I can trace millions and millions of dollars mm-hmm. of revenue that I've generated from $40 worth of mm-hmm. books in 12 hours of reading and probably another I don't know, 36 hours of rereading, but the application of the idea. Let me ask just one question. Why are you so thick-headed that it took you 16 times for this stuff to stick? It's not just you, it's all of us. We know it, we've heard it, we know it's true, we believe it. What's the dissonance there with us? Why is it so hard for us to act? I don't know. Uh, you know, it's a it's a great question because I often wonder that why did it take me 16 times? And here's the thing, Anthony, 16 times to actually hear the very thing I was having the most trouble with. It was there the whole time. It was there the whole time. Of course it was. Absolutely. <clears throat> I reread Seven Habits of Highly Effective People like it's a new book about every two years. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I know this. I've read it every couple years. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And, and you know, I read Harry Brown's book that way. We both are huge fans of, of Harry Brown's The Secret of Selling Anything, which is more a book about understanding and respecting human nature than anything else. And if yes. you understand and respect human nature and don't try and change human nature, but rather work within it in a kind, respectful way, understanding that it's always about pleasing the customer in a, a market-based economy you can't help but just do very, very well. Go with the grain. Mm-hmm. So now for a speed round of questions. What are you reading right now? I am reading. No one can see that you're surrounded by a stack of books. I know. So it's and more I'm than looking, one book. And I, and, and I, well, it is. It's about, it's about six of them. Right now, I'm reading The Sacred Six by J.B. Glossinger. It actually hasn't come out quite yet, but it will be out in a couple of weeks. I'm rereading Servant Leadership. And I'm also rereading Simon Sinek's Leaders Eat Last. I was just looking because I've got like my desk, and I hate to admit this, my desk is not very clean right now, and I've got these books all over my desk. I've got them in my Kindle. What's the most important book you've ever (laughs) read, and why? If you had to pick one. I believe Harry Brown's book, The Secret of Selling Anything. Again, what, what I learned from him regarding people's skills, and I, and I think much of it I, I knew, but he put it in such a way that you could never again be disappointed at someone who didn't do what you wanted them to do because you understood at the core root why it is they did what they did. We better be careful here, Berg. We're going to infect people with a libertarian strength here if we're not watching uh, and it. it. <laughs> but, but it wasn't, a, and, and as you know, though, it, it wasn't a book about libertarian mm. politics or anything. It, no. it was a book about human nature. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. In fact, it's one of his few books in which there was no politics in terms of politicking. (laughs) Well, I was actually politicking there and hoping that people go read it and we'll put them on the path. Who's had the biggest influence on your thinking over the course of your life? Oh, definitely my parents. I mean, the people who I grew up, you know, emulating, watching, learning from. And then I was always lucky, it seems like, through the years, Anthony, to find people who just happened to be where I was and could kind of assist me along the way. Can I share one story with you that made a a huge difference for me? You're Bob Berg. You can share all the stories. (laughs) Thank you. I remember as I was starting, and it was the same company I was talking about as before, and I was really now starting to climb the ranks in terms of sales. But I still didn't kind of have my priorities totally in the right place in terms of what sales was. And there was a gentleman who was working at that same company. He was an older guy who was about to retire, actually. And I don't think I'd ever had a conversation with him before. He always seemed like a nice guy. We just never crossed paths. But I think he saw me as someone who had a lot of potential but needed some advice. And maybe he saw me as sort of like Joe in The the Go-Giver, the guy who had potential but kind of the focus was, was in the wrong place. And he took me aside and he said to me, you know, Berg, if you want to, because I just come back from a no sale, you know, I come back from a place where I hadn't sold and I was really, you know, disappointed about it. And he said, Berg, if you want to make a lot of money in business, if you want to make a lot of money in sales, he said, don't have making money as your target. Your target is serving the customer. Now, when you hit the target, he continued, you'll get a reward. That reward will come in the form of money. And you can do with that money whatever you choose, but never forget that the money itself is only the reward for hitting the target. It's not the target itself. Your target is serving your customer. Isn't it funny how if you believe the outcome is extracting money, extracting money is difficult. But if you believe that the outcome is to get somebody the outcome that they need, the they money need, right. The money as a byproduct is exactly. auto- it's automatic. And fast is slow and slow is fast in all things human relationships. So Mm -hmm. the more you try to go fast to the money part, the more that's unlikely to happen and the longer it would take you if you could succeed. And this is why we say that money is simply an echo of value. Correct. Right? It's the thunder to values lightning. What's the most important lesson you've learned in your life? I think to have empathy for others, to really care about them. And to understand that people are going through their challenges, their problems, they're seeing the world from their own viewpoint, from their own frame, what I call their own belief systems, which is why, again, I believe that the single greatest people skill of all is a highly developed and authentic interest in the other person. When you can take your focus off yourself, when you can move from an I focus or me focus to an other focus, that is where you become a very attractive human being, both in business and personally. And of course, when we say focus on them, we don't mean that in any way that's self-sacrificial, right? In The Go-Giver, we say the law of influence is your influence is determined by how abundantly you place other people's interests first. Well, that certainly doesn't mean you should ever be anyone's doormat. doesn't mean you should be a martyr. It doesn't mean you should be self-sacrificial. Not at all. It's simply an understanding that All things being equal, people will do business with, refer business to, allow themselves to be led and or influenced by, allow their lives to be touched by those people they know, like, 
and trust. And there's no faster, more powerful, or more effective way of eliciting those feelings toward you from others than to, as Sam, one of the mentors and the the go-giver told Joe, to make your win about the other person's win. Such an important lesson. If you weren't writing and speaking, what job would you like to do? Oh, well, that would be play third base for the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to make that dream or not, Bert. Yeah, that, yeah, that one didn't work out so 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 well. It's good uh, to it, have a dream. It, it, it would be something. If I wasn't doing this, it would be something in leadership for a, a professional baseball team. I just, I love baseball. So I would probably do something like that. But really, I, I can't imagine doing anything other than I'm I'm doing. I just absolutely love what I have the opportunity to do. I don't love baseball unless I'm at the stadium. Oh, well, you know something? Baseball is one of the few. Baseball and football, I can watch on TV and enjoy it. But there is nothing like going to the stadium itself. There's something, you you go to a baseball stadium, you can smell the hot dogs and the whole atmosphere. You see that beautiful green field and the perfectly manicured infield. And there's something about it, Anthony, that I just, just love. Me too. What do you hope to be remembered for? I hope to be remembered for doing what I feel is carrying out my dad's legacy, and that is to make people feel genuinely good about themselves. And you're doing a great job at it. Thanks for being here. I appreciate that, and I appreciate you so much, my brother. He is the great Bob Berg, and you can find him at Berg, B-U-R-G, Dot com. You want to go out there and check that out. Sign up for his blog as well and sign up for his newsletter called Influence and Success Insights. It's awesome. I get it and I read it every single time he sends it out. Also, pick up the Go-Giver Leader. You're going to find links in the show notes that'll take you to Bob's site so you can pick that up along with some bonuses. I am Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com. You could also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. When you go there, you're going to be accosted by a pop-up banner. Please enter your first name and give me your email address, and I will send you my best work every Sunday morning. You can read it while you're planning your week, and you will have actionable insights that you can put to work immediately when you show up Monday morning. Thanks for being here. Until next time, I will see you in the arena. This episode of In the Arena was sponsored by Sales Gravy University. You know I'm good friends with Jeb Blunt, and you know he does great work, and you know he wrote Fanatical Prospecting, but you may not know that he created Sales Gravy University. And what is Sales Gravy University, you ask? And it's a great question. Sales Gravy University is sales training in your pocket. What you're going to get is an innovative training app that's going to help you accelerate your sales performance and improve your income, and it's in your pocket. It's on your phone, whether that's an iPhone or an Android phone. You can go out to the iTunes store and download the app, or you can go to the Play Store and download the app there. Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get the platform when you sign up, and you're going to be able to buy what you want. There's going to be in-app purchases there for you. You can purchase some 
courses for 99 cents. And that might be a short video, a tutorial, or an audio program. You're also going to find something that costs more. I think I have a program on there for $9.99. And it's how to plan a sales call. It's four modules. It's probably close to 25 minutes long. And it's content to help you set up success when you're going to do the most important thing that salespeople do, and that's go sit down face-to-face with a client or a prospect. Here's what I love about this platform, and this is where I think Jeb's genius comes in. This is spot training. So you're in your car, you've got a problem, you're going to go out, you're going to watch a video, you're going to read a tutorial, or you're going to listen to an audio track, and you're going to come up with the ideas that you need to succeed when you're sitting down with that customer. Or maybe this is part of your personal development and your growth, and you're going to listen to one module every week, and you're going to work on that module, and then the next week you're going to pick up something else and grow from there. Go check out Sales Gravy University. You can Google it, and you'll come up with the iTunes preview as the second link. You'll also find the link in the show notes or go out to the Play Store and search for Sales Gravy. I promise there's nothing else in the world called Sales Gravy and only a Southerner like Jeb Blunt who rides horses and eats steak and probably drinks whiskey is going to call something Sales Gravy because to a Southerner, nothing is real unless you can put gravy on it. Go check it out. When you get there, tell Jeb that I sent you and do check out the sales call planning module there. I think you'll love it and I think that you're going to find it super helpful when you go in to make a sales call. I am Anthony Anarino, and you can find me at thesalesblog.com. When you go there, you're going to be assaulted by a pop-up banner when you try to click on something or when you try to leave, and that's so that I can get your first name and your email address. I'm going to send you every Sunday morning content that you can use in your sales game or your business game or your success game. That's long form, actionable, something that you're going to be able to look at Monday morning and say, I've got ideas and I can get to work improving myself and my results. Also, go visit me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. Do subscribe there where I'll send you video content, me talking into the camera, sharing ideas with you or interviewing other people. Thanks so much for being here. I'll see you next time right here in the arena.